0: this is our fourth and final in this short series on money and possessions. Uh, now, many of you probably have financial advisors. I think we have some financial advisors in our congregation, in fact. Uh, they understand a lot about how free markets work, how to invest money wisely so that you'll have enough money towards the end of your life to meet your needs. And we're thankful for people like this. A wise investment counselor would encourage you not just to think about tomorrow or a year from now, but to think about 30 years from now. Start as early as you can. Play the long game. There's no need to be aggressive with your investment strategy early on. Just be patient. These are all uh, things you've probably heard before. It's all good advice. It's wise and right to plan for the future. But as Christians, we know that this life is not all there is. In fact, the Bible tells us that this life is like a vapor, here today and gone tomorrow. It's just, it's just a blip compared to eternity. And This is where Jesus steps in as our most perfect financial advisor, encouraging us not to think 30 years into the future, but to think 30 million years into the future, How are you preparing for that future? Today we're going to look at uh, Jesus' heavenly investment strategy for his followers. So grab your Bibles. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 19 to 21. If you need to use a pew Bible, you'll find today's text on page 964. And once you're there, I invite you to please stand with me if you're able, out of reverence for the word of God, and follow along with me as I read. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is God's Word. Pray with me. Gracious Father, open our eyes to the treasure of the words of your mouth as more desirable than all the pleasures of this world that money can buy. Help us to know Christ more truly that we may love him more dearly this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So in week one of our series, we saw that it's an encounter with the mercies of God toward us that help us to uh, show mercifully uh, mercy to others uh, and, and bless others with our money. It's God's mercy that makes us merciful, and uh, as as a part of our repentance and uh, following Jesus, we use our money in merciful ways. And then week two, we saw that it's uh, understanding the immense worth and value of having Christ and being welcomed by Him the value of that breaks us out of the gravitational pull or out of the orbit that our stuff has on our hearts, right? How do we break out of that orbit? It's by seeing that we have a more valuable treasure than anything this world can offer us. And last week, we learned that everything we own belongs to God and we're stewards of all of it. And we must invest his money in alignment with his values. And Jesus values people over possessions, so we're to use our wealth to make for us friends in eternity by introducing others to Jesus, using leveraging our wealth, our, our money, our possessions toward those ends. Now finally, today we're looking at a brief teaching of Jesus that's part of a larger block of his teaching, popularly known as the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus teaches us about the values of his kingdom, and how we are to live rightly as citizens in his kingdom. So here in this text today, Jesus instructs us not only to think about investing in this life, but how we must prioritize investing for eternity. And that what we do with our wealth and our possessions now will pay massive dividends in eternity. Now, some might object here, thinking that all this teaching about pursuing heavenly treasure seems so self-serving. After all, aren't, aren't we as Christians supposed to be selfless? This seems selfish to pursue uh, treasure. But consider the fact that 40 times in just Luke's gospel alone, Jesus promises us rewards or loss of reward in connection with his commands. And so it's something that Jesus talks about, and we need to pay attention to it and understand it rightly. It's not entirely clear what exactly all of these rewards and treasures are, but we do get glimpses. There are things that we can understand about heavenly treasure. For example, last week we learned that eternal friendships uh, are just some of the treasures that await us in the new heaven And the new earth. But consider some others. In Luke 19, Jesus promises positions of leadership and authority to the faithful servants who invested the resources that he entrusted to them. Look at uh, verses 17 and 19. And he said to them, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your Mina has made 5 minas and he said to him and you are to be over 5 cities. So here's uh, another uh, example of heavenly treasure being given authority and responsibility in the in the new heaven and the new earth. And at the end of Matthew 19 Jesus promises those who gave up earthly possessions like land and homes and family will receive back those things a hundredfold in the life to come. We're sometimes quick to forget that the new heaven and the new earth will not be some purely spiritual place where we float around as disembodied spirits. It's a real place that you can touch, and you're going to have bodies to move around in this glorious new heaven and the new earth. It's a physical reality, with land and homes. In Psalm 16, verse 11, promises yet another type of treasure that awaits us. He says, you you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. It's being in the very presence of God. There's pleasures forevermore. But here in our text, in Matthew 6, the language and the context strongly suggests another form of treasure that awaits us. That will be some kind of material wealth. We don't know exactly what that looks like. But we know that it will have value in the new heaven and the new earth. This is even more clear in uh, Luke's parallel passage in his gospel. Look at Luke 12 verse 33 with me. He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Now, because giving away our possessions is the way in this text that we're commanded to provide treasure in heaven for ourselves, I think this is also in view in our parallel passage uh, today in Matthew 6. So, as you look more closely at this passage, I want to show you the wisdom of Jesus' heavenly investment strategy of giving away our earthly wealth. Sounds counterintuitive to the wisdom of our world, doesn't it? But I have three reasons from our text for why giving away your wealth is wise and good for you. The first one is giving is a good investment. The second is giving is good for your heart. And thirdly, giving glorifies God. So those are our three points this morning. Let's dive right in. In verse 19, Jesus tells us not to store up for ourselves treasures on earth. Why? Why? It's pretty simple. They're not going to last. Why store up and invest in what will not last? The mention of moths tells us that their clothing was much more valuable uh, to people in Jesus' day. They often only had one or two cloaks for their lifetime, and they were even passed down to the next generation uh, after them. In Exodus 22, we learn that it was a common practice for someone to, to put their uh, to give their cloak as collateral for a uh, a loan. And we see the value of Jesus' clothing at the end of His life at the cross, when the soldiers were casting lots just to have His garments. Verse 19 uh, tells us that. Rust is also a threat. The word rust here can refer to the corrosion of metals, but it also can refer to the loss of crops from things like rodents. And finally, another threat to wealth is thieves breaking in to steal. And interestingly, this word uh, break in literally is uh, to dig in. Because in those days, most homes were made of mud brick and, and thieves needed only to dig through the wall of your home to steal your stuff. So that's what that word literally means, dig in uh, it's a break in. I mean, I guess it's breaking in as well. But. Now the point of all this, though, is that your stuff won't last. You can't take it with you. This is why you don't see uh, a hearse towing a U-Haul. They don't take it with them. However, Jesus teaches that when we give away our wealth to help the poor, and to help others hear about Jesus, we are storing up treasures that will be waiting for us in heaven. This is the central idea in Randy Alcorn's book, The Treasure Principle, and it's this, that while you can't take it with you, you can send it ahead. On November eighth, two thousand sixteen, the Indian government declared that all 1,000 rupee banknotes would be null and void. And this is like saying all of your tens and twenty dollar bills—they're going to be worthless. Okay, they're going to be worthless. They won't be any good. But here's the crazy thing about this announcement. This was to go into effect only four hours after the announcement. Imagine that? Our government is saying, hey, all your 10s and 20s are going to be worthless in four hours, right? So what did people do? Of course, there was a frantic rush to the banks to exchange those uh, those, uh, 500 and 1,000 rupee notes uh, for ones that would be worth something after the four hours was up. They turned money that would soon be worthless into money that would have more lasting value. Church, you have one life on this earth that's a fleeting vapor. It's shorter than four hours in in comparison to eternity. You can't take the money and the possessions you have with you, they'll be worthless. And the new heaven and the new earth. But you can convert them. You can convert them by giving as much as you can away to help the poor and to advance the gospel. Storing up treasure in heaven is even better because it's not a one for one exchange rate. Look at what Jesus says at the end of Matthew 19. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. That's incredible. That's an incredible return on your investment. A 10,000% increase. How about that? that that's a deal. You're not just exchanging, you're, you're gaining when you give your money away for the cause of Christ. What if you could take a time machine and go back to the mid-70s and invest in this little uh, unheard of tech company that was started up by a young guy named Steve Jobs who is uh, running this outfit out of his family's garage. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about Apple. Knowing what you know today, you'd invest as much as you possibly could knowing how much it would pay off you know, into the future, wouldn't you? Well, how much more sure are the promises of God for the kingdom to come that awaits us even more than death and taxes, right? We're told death and taxes are the only certainties in life. Well, even more than that, the only true guarantee is that Jesus is building his church against which the gates of hell will never prevail. So we should invest with the greatest possible confidence knowing that whatever we give for the sake of Christ will not be lost. It'll yield a hundredfold in the age to come. We'd be foolish not to, wouldn't we? You see, Jesus isn't against investment. He's, he actually commands it in verse 20. What Jesus is against is bad investment. Don't hoard and build what will never last. Give whatever you can away to bless the poor, to help others know about Christ. Well, some of you might be thinking, you know, isn't, isn't this prosperity gospel teaching? You know, those preachers on TV who promise, you know, give money to my ministry, it'll be a seed and, and God will heal all your diseases and shower you with wealth in this life. These pastors are wearing designer clothing and buying and flying around in private jets. This is not what Jesus is teaching. That's repulsive and wicked. This is not what Jesus teaches here. This This toxic prosperity gospel is actually a distortion and a perversion of what Jesus does teach. Look at what he says in Luke 14. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind... And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus isn't saying don't live, uh, or Jesus Jesus is saying don't live for -for tit-for-tat rewards in this life. Be generous to people who can't pay you back, and your reward will be waiting for you. When? Not in this life. In the age to come. At the resurrection, when Jesus returns and ushers in his kingdom. This is what the harmful prosperity gospel gets all wrong. Your reward is not an earthly reward that comes to you in this life, but in the life to come on the new heaven and the new earth. In John Piper's book, Desiring God, he advocates for giving with a wartime mentality, not just a simplistic lifestyle, but a wartime mentality with respect to our stuff, our money, and our possessions. In 1934, perhaps the most luxurious cruise liner of its day was launched. Its name was the Queen Mary, and she would carry celebrities like Bob Hope and Clark Gable and royalty like the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Even heads of state like Winston Churchill would would ride on her. She was truly grand and even set speed records. It was was one of the most fantastic cruise liners of the day. But in 1939, as World War II was raging, the Queen Mary was repurposed. She was stripped of all her luxuries and painted a camouflage gray and became a troop transport ship. More than a simplistic lifestyle, what if more Christians lived a wartime lifestyle for a cause infinitely more worthy than winning World War II? What if we leveraged everything that we have for the cause of Christ? Giving away as as much as we could for the cause of Christ is the greatest investment anyone can make. But giving away wealth is not just good investment strategy. It's also good for your heart. That's our second point. Look at verse 21 with me. This verse is showing us the connection between our treasure and our hearts, how they relate to each other in two different ways. First, your treasure acts like a thermometer, meaning that it takes the temperature of your heart and reveals its nature. If you really want to know if you are overly consumed with the things of this world, then look at where your money goes. Take an honest look at your budget. Make a note of where the money flows. What's easy for you to spend money on? What kind of things make you think twice and you're a little bit reluctant to, to spend money on those things? Ask yourself, does this show that I am living for the world to come? Do I long for heaven or am I too consumed with this world that's passing away? I'm not saying you can't enjoy God's good gifts, but it's an exorbitant amount of your if an exorbitant amount of your wealth is being spent on your own comfort and worldly pleasures, you've got to take a serious look at that. Just look where the money goes and it will tell you. It's like a thermometer. The second way your wealth relates to your heart is as a thermostat, meaning your heart will follow your treasure. Let's say you're you're convicted and you don't like where your money is going tells you about your heart. You're grieved, you're, you're bothered. Uh, what do you do? What do you do if you don't like where your money is going, what it tells you about your heart? You may not feel like giving away wealth for the cause of Christ, but you agree that it's good and right and you want to on another level, right? Then start giving, not under compulsion or obligation, but with faith trusting the promises of God despite how you feel. And the joy will follow. It'll act like a thermostat, right? You send your money where you want your heart to be. This is different than giving out of a sense of duty or obligation. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. If I give away all I have, but have not love, I gain nothing, he says. So it's possible for you to give everything away. But if you're not doing it with a heart of love, then it's meaningless. And this tells us that God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. Each one, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. It's about the heart with which you give it, not how much you're giving. So there's a fine line here. If you don't feel like giving, don't, don't give out of heartless duty, but give in faith, trusting God more than your feelings. And like a rudder on a ship, where you direct the outward flow of your money, your heart will gradually begin to follow. Understand that your heart is, is essential to, to who you are. It drives and directs your entire life and it influences every decision you make. What you daydream about, what you think about constantly, where your affections are. They will steer the course of your life. So if your heart is on earthly things, you're going to be, your, your life is gonna be steered toward earthly things and not for eternity. This is why Paul writes to the Colossian church in chapter three, verse two, set your mind, or some translations say heart here, set your mind or heart on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. But even more fundamentally, how do you do this when you don't feel like it? You need to remind yourself that Christ first gave it all to make you his treasure. In order to make it possible for you to make him your treasure. You've got to think about that. You've got to meditate on that truth. Jesus laid aside the riches of heaven to be born into our world in poverty. He was homeless and only had one garment, one possession. Remember what Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And at the very end of his life, his one garment, his one possession was taken from him. On the cross when he paid for your sin, when he died and rose again on the third day, all to make you his treasure, that you would make him your treasure. Philippians 3, Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. When you have the treasure of Christ, then your money will no longer have control of your heart. It'll just be money. But more than being apathetic about money, you'll begin to see it as, as a eternal investment capital, as opportunity. What can I do with this? How can I invest this? How might I bless someone and be merciful to people? When you suddenly come upon some money, it won't control you, and neither will you be indifferent towards it. You'll get excited thinking about, where can I direct this? Who can I bless with this? What can I do with this? And it's the grace of God that transforms your heart to think like that. So if you don't feel like giving, you need to go back to the gospel and remind yourself of Christ who became poor, that you might become rich, that he would make you his treasure so that you could make him your treasure When you have the treasure of Christ, you'll want to talk about the goodness of God with your brothers and sisters in Christ when we gather. You'll want to share Jesus with your unsaved friends. And you'll want to give away your wealth to make those things possible. And by doing this, you proclaim to the world that Jesus is worth more than anything else you could ever spend that money on for yourself. Like that old song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of the world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When you give like this, it's not only good for your heart, it glorifies God. And this is our final point giving glorifies God. It was John Piper who said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied. In him, When God has your heart and your affections, it proclaims his worth and value to the rest of the world. Jamie Dunlop has this little booklet. It's actually available on the wall in the foyer. Uh, it's a little booklet about why you should give to your church. And he has this great uh, illustration there that I can also relate to. When my wife makes a meal that my kids don't care for, which is rare, by the way, because my wife's a great cook. Uh, by the way, she's got a chili entered in the chili contest. I'm feeling good about it. Uh, so if, if you're not uh, signed up for the chili contest, come join us after the, the service. But enough about that. When my wife makes food uh, and our, our kids don't care for it, they have to eat it anyway. Or they have to eat a certain amount of it. But when they do, where's the focus when this happens? The focus is on their obedience, Right? They're, they're muscling through it. You know, they're, uh, they're taking polite bites. That's what we tell our kids, you know, when they, when we go over to someone's house to eat something, we're like, okay, I don't know what it is. You might not like it, but you've got to take polite bites, you know, take a few bites. Uh, When they do that, the focus is on their obedience, but notice the difference when she makes something they love. They love chicken tikka masala, by the way. That's like a big hit in our, in our, uh, our house. Big thank you to Palab for that recipe. That's a, a family favorite. They devour it. They rave about how good it was. Now where's the focus now? It's on my wife and her incredible cooking skills, right? She is glorified when they enjoy it. And so God is glorified when we enjoy him. It's the same thing. When we delight in God so much that we joyfully give away our wealth, it makes a statement to the rest of the world that Jesus is worth it. When we choose to live a wartime lifestyle, it's because we have a priceless treasure in Jesus and we want to share him with as many people as possible. Now, in the few minutes we have left, I want to wrap up this series by showing you how giving generously to your local church brings glory to God. If this isn't your local church, think about your local church if you're visiting with us. But if this is your church, think about Fishkill Baptist Church, how giving generously to the local church glorifies God. It's the clear teaching of the New Testament that members of the local church should first direct their giving to fund the advancement of the gospel through their church. And this glorifies God as more people come to know him as their treasure. Look at just a few verses with me. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul writes, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. 1 Timothy 5, 17, 18, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Or Galatians six, 6 let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Understand, the last thing I want right now in this moment is for this to come across as self-serving in any way. I'm simply trying to show you what the New Testament teaches. Here are three clear commands of the Lord, that those who've been called vocationally to give their lives to the proclamation of the gospel should make their living by it. And this is a joyful burden rightly carried by members of the local church. These letters are written to churches, to people in churches. So you give so that I don't have to get another job and am able to devote hours of my time every week to study and preparation for proclaiming the gospel week in and week out from this pulpit. That's because... You make that possible by by giving. Finally, your giving to our church makes it possible for us to support the full-time work of many missionaries personally vetted and held accountable by our church. These people are bringing the gospel all over the world so that others may know the treasure of knowing Christ as their Savior. Over 20% of our budget flows out to fund our missionaries. And we believe this makes a bold statement about where our ultimate treasure is as a church. I read a stat this week that was a little shocking to me. The average Christian in the U.S. gives about 2.5% of their income to the local church. And now compare this to 3.3% given during the Great Depression. By the way, I don't know what anyone gives here, and I don't want to. In fact, no one here knows what anyone gives except for one person, our financial secretary, uh, who has incredible uh, discretion, uh, keeps everything confidential. uh, And the only reason they need to is because someone has to give out the year-end charitable giving statements. In fact, if you want to know how the money that you're giving is being used, here's another plug for Tuesday, March 12th. Put it on your calendar. Our annual meeting is coming up. Uh, we're, we have a sign-up in, uh, in your bulletin. There's a sign-up out in the Narthex. Uh, come uh, enjoy a pizza kind of fellowship dinner with us. But there you'll be able to learn exactly where the money you're investing here is going. What's it being used for? How is it advancing the gospel? Let's celebrate some of the things that God has done in and through this body, uh, through all of your investment over the last year. There's no secrets here. We want you to know this and to be excited about supporting the mission of our church to reach the lost. And know that I share none of this to guilt trip anyone. I share it because I care about your hearts, I'm for your joy. John Piper's main point in his book Desiring God is that your pursuit of joy in Christ and his pursuit of glory from you are not in conflict. They're the same pursuit. And so I want you to know the freedom and the pleasure of Jesus' heavenly investment strategy. It's the best investment you can make, it's good for your heart and it glorifies God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you.